Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. not a dream if it's real. There is a chasm between you and I, Charles, a gap that cannot be crossed. With each passing day, I fear it will never be. I am immortal, and I have no end. I fear our needs will far outlast our desires. We have many hard choices ahead of us. They will think we are doing one thing, but the truth is we are doing something altogether different. And now we build. These overly dramatic, very cookie-cutter wisdom statements are the opening lines of the amazing, mind-bending, groundbreaking Powers of Ten by John Hickman. This is Uncanny Exes for Podcast. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. And I'm Jonah. And here's to ignoring the future and hoping we survive that experience. Yeah, because I mean, it's technically the future past anyway. At the time of recording this, we are like balls deep in a tits deep. We are tits deep in X-Men. X-Men number one has come out and we are in X-Men up to our tits. Several of us bought multiple covers. Covers for all of our tits and balls. I am over the moon that the powerhouse project was in so many ways for X-Men a success. I kind of felt like there's no way they can keep us going to the first week, but I'm just double-checking. Everybody got their trading cards, right? Yes, Jonah, don't worry. I got you a set when I picked up your cup. Yes, I got mine plus a few others for friends. Kyle, did you get any trading cards? No, I didn't. <gasps> oh no, Kyle. Cards. Oh, there are trading cards of all of the first covers. Don't worry, I have a set for you. I got you covered. Uh, oh, thank you. And <laughs> they come with a Krakoan alphabet card. It's awesome. Ooh. A number of stores did X-Men number one launch parties. Evidently, a few stores even did midnight launch parties, and when I asked my store if they would be doing one of those, they politely laughed in my face. <laughs> but I totally get why. <laughs> I wouldn't do a midnight. Oh, I used to work in a comp shop. They were like, do you want to be here at midnight for a release of X-Men? And they would be like, do you want to be here at a release of Magic the Gathering at midnight? I would be like, I would rather have Chinese fingernail torture. Like, that sounds horrible. So I just can't even imagine. But, oh man, X-Men number one has been so exciting. I think we all have it. I think we've all read it. So, before we can even really get into the discussion, a certain topic has been popping up all over the internet, and that is that there is some strong implicit vibes that it's possible Gene Scott Logan finally figured this thing out. For my sake, the proof is somewhat substantial. There's the, as discussed multiple times, lingering Scott looking out the window longingly at his boyfriend who just exploded in the sun moment from house number four. There's, of course, the house number six moment where they're all just kind of hugging and we determine that Gene's about to peg the both. And there's the fact that in the pages of X-Men number one, it is confirmed that Jean's room is situated between Scott and Logan's. Now, whatever they're going to do with this, it could simply be just a matter of make more mutes, which is one of the three mottos of the Krakoan citizens. However, if there is some possibility that the ex-offices have seen it in their wisdom to give Jonathan Hick the opportunity to pursue a storyline about a different kind of love, a different kind of romance, I would be over the moon. However, I do have some concerns. I'm not concerned about Hickman, who has been amazing about everything he's done so so far. 
I am a bit concerned about the media not understanding the situation. Every single article I've seen so far has on some level treated this relationship possibility as a sexual and tawdry thing. As a poly man, this is my dream come true for like my all-time favorite ever fictional relationship ever, ever. That every headline is some sort of oh sexy fun times and not look at the huge leaps Marvel is making. The representation here is what's important and since it's about representation, let's talk about the realities of a healthy poly cluster unit. That's kind of what's the problem. This isn't about fucking, it's about the real-life possibility of a non-binary solution to a societally created problem. Sensationalizing situations like this affects all forms of love by boiling any relationship down to sex. You can approve of polyamory or not, but to misrepresent a system of love accepted in many parts of the history of the world, just so you can salaciously put an image of Hugh Jackman next to a picture of another male and say X-Men, more like XXX-Men, it just makes the situation and the writer of that article seem reductive. As a show that covers X-Men from not just a queer perspective, but a poly perspective, it's important to remember that representation doesn't just boil down to the handful of things we've always been told. There's always new kinds of representation to be thinking about and audiences' feelings to be protective of. Jonah, this directly kind of affects you in the same way it does me. What had been your thoughts on this emerging theory that it's possible Gene, Scott, and Logan are entering unseen territory? Well, I would like to say the only thing I'm upset over is that there's no Emma in this. But what makes me really happy is a lot of what Nico talks about for his comic and when you see Nico on panels is representation and the importance of representation and what that means. And having the potential of a poly couple being in a major comic of three of the most ubiquitous characters for the X-Men makes me so happy to see and the only thing I am afraid of really is making sure it's done right. I don't want it to be... I need it to be handled with care and I need it to be handled with love because I, when you have such a large audience like this and you are pushing a boundary of showing something non-conventional like a poly couple, you have to be careful that you don't misrepresent and don't misrepresent the community because you don't want to give your audience the wrong idea of what it can possibly be. I agree, and it's such a comfort to know that you and I have faced down some adversity with this, and even if that's not where this is going, that there has at least been a more positive reaction than expected, even if it's a little salacious is comforting. Kyle, Dylan, even if you guys aren't directly members of the community in the same way, that doesn't mean that your opinions aren't valid and we're not curious to know more what you guys think. How do you guys feel about the possibility of a canonical emergence of a more complicated romantic dynamic than simply the heteronormative cis binary? So I really like the idea. Uh, oh, jeez. How do I even want to wear this? I was literally thinking to myself, wait, he didn't start with a G's or an oh boy. I'm concerned. Is he okay? <laughs> so I like the idea. I really do. I'm just worried that it might become more of a gimmick than anything else. And I don't want to see that happen because I have so many friends who are in amazing poly relationships and I don't want to see them feel like they're not properly being represented. Well, as one of those friends, a thank you! <laughs>
You're welcome. I agree with Kyle. I I hope it doesn't get misused. And I, like Jonah said, I hope representation is shown accurately. As someone who doesn't really talk about this, but the last relationship that I was in, I was dating a man who had a wife. And for a handful of years, the three of us made that relationship work. So this kind of means a lot to me, um, seeing this with this possibility with Scott, Logan, and Gene. And I hope it may broaden some people's horizons or help people step out of the box that they might be in. That relationship that I was in, it was not something that I was looking for and not something that I ever thought I would be in, but I came across it. And it, it was something new to me, but... It, I don't want to sound cheesy when I say this, but love is love and no one should judge or misunderstand or sexualize love. I couldn't have asked for a better discussion on a topic that is incredibly personal and incredibly sensitive. So guys, thanks. I can't wait to talk more about (laughs) X-Men number one because it was so good. It was so good. There were those, like, I, my two favorite moments by far are Cable being like, Mom, can I trade guns with Raza? And Gene being oh like, God, was- set the table first, dear. That's like literally, that's like my head cannon, and it came true. Like, I started trembling, and I got to show Cabo, and he was like, oh, my bear, you're so happy. And I was like, look, it's my dreams. And I enjoyed Vulcan saying he never had a strong male figure in his life. Poor Corsair. Because, well, when did he have Vul- When did Corsair have Vulcan? <laughs> when did Vulcan have Corsair? <laughs> At what point, being raised as, like, the interstellar version of Room, okay? Basically, I'm saying that Vulcan is Brie Larson in Room, okay? <laughs> he had a staircase and some shadow puppets! <laughs> We're laughing at Rome. That said, I actually, I actually, who are, yeah, that is, that's an amazing point. Yeah, can we not? I actually hate Vulcan. I think he's like the worst character. Like, seriously, I just hate him. But like, that exchange was so funny. And I can't wait to talk all about Scott giving Corsair a Krakoa flower. I'm really excited about how much Storm there was. Jonah, you must have been so happy about the amount of Storm. Dylan, you as well. Kyle, oh my god, we're such Storm heads here. We have our heads up in the clouds. Can we have just an entire episode about Storm? But yes, I was very happy with the amount of Storm. Jonah, what was it like getting to read your first ever live issue of X-Men? And then I promise we're moving on to Pox. It's just so hard. I was pretty fascinated. We read this very impactful special series, Pox Pox, and now we're getting into the main meat of where is the story of X-Men going to go? And I was really excited to see, you know, what's going on. And I think I'm, you guys can shoot me down and you can be mad at me saying this. This was almost a filler issue for the first one because we got glimpses of where the story is going to go, but it focused a little bit more on detail and I can't think of a proper word for it, but it's it's more the supportingness of it, of what's going on in the background, you know? Uh, uh, we're getting... A thousand percent. No, that, a thousand percent. That's a Hickman book. That's just straight up a John Hickmanism. He He just does these sort of like... 
I'm going to introduce things for 76 issues, and then there's going to be nine issues where stuff happens, and when you go back and you read those first 76 issues, you're going to be like, this was actually nonstop action, now that I know the whole picture. I, cause trust me, I'm pretty sure 12 pages, my favorite 12 pages was everybody just hanging out at a beach house on the moon. I'm with you. It was filler. It was filler that made me happy. <laughs> it was good filler. It was a good beach episode of an anime. That's basically the oh. equivalent of what this was. Oh my god, yes, this is the episode in Avatar Season 3 where they're all at the beach house, <laughs> and they're like- Oh, hey, Ember Island. Oh my god, yes! that's my favorite episode. That's one of my favorites. Oh my god, I I love Mai and Ty Lee. Oh my god, Ty Lee is my life. Oh, oh my god, that's such a great episode. Okay, does anybody else have any <laughs> pressing feelings on Avatar or Ember Island before we move on to Powers of Ten? Oh my god. No, I think I'll save my Ember Island uh, thoughts for, for the Avatar podcast. Time. Hashtag right, justice for Azula. Right, as long as we all understand Korasami forever. Yes. So. Yeah. For all the craziness we talked about House of X spinning X-Men right round, there was something about Powers of Ten that spun it right round, round, round. It was incredible to try and keep up with some of the Kajagugu nonsense that was going on throughout this title. I was really relieved in a lot of ways that the Powers of Ten title did serve a purpose. I know we'd had some concerns that the book didn't make sense as two books, like what, you know, going into this, but ultimately, that Powers of Ten primarily focused on year one, year ten, year one hundred, year one thousand, in terms of one another, that was kind of a relief. Before we get into everybody's favorite moments, Kyle, did the fact that Powers of Ten ultimately had a, a meaning feel like a good sign early on, at least? How did you feel about understanding that it was Powers of Ten and not Powers of X? I'll be honest, I did not realize that it was Powers of Ten until we started talking about this. <laughs> but I honestly think that it's a brilliant idea. And being able to see all these storylines building up this new world in different ways that we weren't expecting it, just, just wow. I can't help but agree. It really is just wow. The layers of all these years. Dylan, as a Marvel aficionado, one of the things that is the stock and trade of Marvel Comics is alternate futures that are like, you know, fuck. And like, I am positive that it wasn't too many years ago that there was most definitely that whole Age of Ultron, Secret Wars, time is broken, nobody can move through time ever again, and like, the drama of time itself became such an intrinsic part of the X-Men, with the time-displaced X-Men in the all-new All-Bendis era. Following that, Hidden swore during the, it seemed like an endless ramp-up for this title, that this would not be a time travel story, and then the first fucking issue of the second series was goddamn time travel? The fuck? How did you feel about getting another X-Men time travel story that literally had nothing to do with time travel? Well, it's kind of hard to answer that because it had nothing to do with time travel. In the first couple of issues, especially in the first issue where we got to see year 1000 and see these new mutants that we had no idea who they were, but then we got the information pages that told us, not that Kyle's words were not right, but and not that I don't want to sound like him, but just, wow, it was amazing. I don't think there's anything wrong with using the word amazing. It's kind of a hard word to avoid with a title like this. Jonah, for your sake, you were given four timelines to keep track of. 
And this was your introduction to modern X-Men where you weren't promised a satisfying conclusive ending early on. How did it feel wandering through what seemed like an endless array of timelines? What Hickman gave us was amazing and pretty great, but I think maybe he could have done a little bit better of juggling things to make it a little clearer to read. I understand he was hiding details to give us suspense and surprise and be like, <gasps> but I think there might have been a better way to not confuse readers as much while still getting that payoff of a surprise. Kyle, what was your biggest shock? What was the surprise of Powers of Ten where you were just like, <laughs> I'm having a difficult time with this because looking back at Powers of Ten, I'm not really sure that there was that much that shocked me. But I think that what might have disgusted me, maybe, the most, that what? maybe gave me the most reaction was watching Silabel be pretty much turned into data by Nimrod. Yeah, having your existence boiled down to a couple of binaries is a little is a little tough stuff. I really understand what you're saying. When you, Well, one of the things I thought that was really funny is when you said disgusted me, I was going to say, oh, is it when Moira basically says that she made Proteus and Legion happen? That she basically set Charles up with Gabby so that they would make a bomb baby? That's not a baby, it's a bomb! And, like, I- oh, Jesus. But I'm with you on that. Silabelle's story, that's why I even brought her up. Her story was actually really tragic, and evidently, she is one of the characters that Hickman is eager to return to in the pages of Moira's solo title, which will, and I quote, dance on the raindrops between continuity. Sweet! Dylan, what shocked you? What was just like, ah, like, you know, when you like think you're about to like drink soda or something and you sip it and you're like, oh my God, that's not soda, that's lasagna. What? Oh your, my God. What? What? <laughs> what was your lasagna soda moment? I don't know if it was like a super shocking moment for me, but because at least knowing how Hickman is about throwing things here and there and we're going to come back to it in issue four of Powers, we were introduced to, like, the history or origins of Krakoa, and we got to find out that Krakoa used to be a bigger landmass that was called Arkara or something, and then some weird thing with- Yeah, it had a twin! Yeah, and then Arkara got split into two, and one of those two was Krakoa, and the other one is Arako, and we saw that in, like, one panel. Apocalypse yes. knows all about it. Yes, and we got to see that in, like, one or two panels, and then not mentioned again. So, my shocking moment is the fact that we know that this is going to be brought up again. I hope we see some ties to it in Excalibur. We have no fucking clue how Excalibur happens. So many mutes wind up in Excalibur off, you know, on their own, and I'm, like, really excited because Excalibur is traditionally my favorite title, and all about that Betsy Catlight. But I am real baffled what that book is going to be about. On the very last page of House 6, on the very bottom, it talks about how, or in the little weird Krakoan font that's on the bottom of the information pages, it talks about Dawn of X.19, which I'm assuming means 2019. And then underneath that, it says Arako.20, and Arako is Krakoa's twin, I guess, and I'm assuming that means 2020. Oh, all of the fun little zippy doodad data talk on the bottom of the pages that we analyzed throughout the series, especially on House 2's episode, where we talked about the many lives of Moira X. Jonah, I'm curious to know what your biggest shot is. 
I think my biggest shock is comes from Power 6 when it's revealed that in Moira's sixth life, she gains the knowledge that no matter what she does and no matter what path they take, it always ends up with the mutants losing. And the reason why I say this is a shock is because in the house issues and the main timeline that we're currently reading, there's a lot of focus and talk about this time succeeding. This time is going to be different. And, you know, I find it really admirable that Moira in her 10th life going through 7, 8, and 9 trying to figure out the best approach to save mutant kind and having to live with that knowledge for that many lives is really a shock to me because I want the mutants to succeed. I want them to be able to live for as long as they do and have a peaceful society. It's really disappointing in some ways. Like, knowing that they're probably not going to win, making them want to win, and like, look, for my sake, the other biggest shock in the series is Moira at the end being like, hey guys, I'm not dead, but I'm kind of like, implicitly maybe a little bit not the nicest guy anymore. I'm kind of the new Xavier. Blame everything on me. Moira is, a, Moira McTaggart is a jerk. And like, there's some, there's some weird heaviness. Kevo was like, how do you feel that Moira seems to be like this evil mastermind at this point? And I'm really excited to be an X-Men fan right now. Tell me about some of your favorite moments in POS. My favorite moment was getting introduced to the Chimeras and learning about that life of Moira's in the year 1000, that there's brand new mutants that are just being, actually being made, not to be compared to House of X where they're talking about making more mutants, the actually being made and combined with DNA of three or five mutants. It was pretty exciting. And I'm sure Jonah would agree that it was really cool to meet the mutants like Cardinal and Rasputin and North. Wow, you named all, all my three favorites. Yes, I'm going to agree with Dylan. I think the Chimeras were my favorite part, but there's one specific moment I want to highlight, and I will keep advocating for her throughout everything. In Moira Nine's life, where Karima is facing off against an injured Zorn and Rasputin. Oh, that was a good moment too. Rasputin rips off Zorn's helmet and says, let's find out what's in a black hole. Oh my god, that was such an amazing moment to be able to read, and it is why I keep saying I want to see more of Rasputin, because that characterization, that, you know, really badass moment we got to see of her, makes me want to see more of her. And if nothing else, they need to release those tarot cards. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Yes! Gimme, I want a whole gimme, deck gimme. of Chimera tarot cards. A gimme, gimme! I don't even need a whole set, I'll just take a major arcana set. Wimp out, don't do any minor arcana. Cups, spheres, wands, flames, no, I don't get, get shit. get those out of here. <laughs> Here. We need an emperor, those, empress, moon, you don't like sun. This? Get this out of here. The hanging man. Yes. Everything. It's out of here. I'm just throwing things across the room. We've had some amazing moments. Like, we've talked about so many of these already. And I was honestly concerned it wouldn't be able to be a part of the show with us getting ready to do Thor Bros. And you had just left Champions. And this was going to be a heavy weekly commitment. And I know you're a busy guy. So I had been so concerned that we weren't going to be able to be a part of this project. But I certainly, in retrospect, would have never been as happy with the final product if you hadn't been a part of it. And I know that this storytelling really pushed the limits of what you expected the X-Men to do. And I would love to know the moment that stood out, Powers of Ten for you, as, like, the moment of Pox. I mean, I've been talking for a while about my thoughts on Moira 6. So having the reveal that year 1000 was Moira 6's life 
that just it made me so excited and at the same time it kind of made me feel really depressed because it was the realization that no matter what they do they always lose it's that potential that everything really could be on the line in this you can't escape losing kind of way it's just What question are we still waiting on an answer to? For my money, I'm waiting to know why it looks like Siren is trying desperately to fist the shit out of Dazzler in that one panel. I am desperate to know why Siren is getting a good running lead at Dazzler's asshole. What is happening? But the nice moment is she looked to Sean and was like, can I do it, Dad? He was like, I love you. Oh my god. Sean looking a little bit like Sean, a little bit like Sabretooth, is like, that's it, Siren. Go fist that diva. I won't disagree with you. That's the that's the look on that proud. I can't with you three. This is awful. (laughs) Poor Allison. So what question what question left you all with burning sensations? Um a burning sensation that I haven't been able to relieve yet for mine is it's revealed by Moira that there are no precogs allowed on Krakoa. Any precog is going to know that the future isn't favorable for mutants, and that's why they're not allowed on there. Now, this actually brings me two questions. One, one of the rules that the Quiet Council in states is make more mutants. Are they going to be controlling what mutations are and aren't allowed? Because what if a mutant is born with precog abilities? What happens then? And my second question is we know that Hickman was inspired by Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. In that run, Morrison introduced the idea that mutants have the ability to develop secondary mutations. What happens if a mutant develops the secondary mutation of the foresight? What's going to happen to them? Those are really good questions. Let me jump in with three things. Number one, as soon as you said what if a mutant is born, I was like, oh my god, it's gonna be Charlie's Choice! Oh my god, it's gonna be Charlie's Choice! Does he kill the baby? Does he kill the baby? Right? But then I was also kind of like, everybody sort of generally agrees, Emma Frost's secondary mutation is awesome. And outside of the diamond form, the the, the general, uh, sentiment in the, in the fandom is kind of like, uh, uh, filling a bathtub with shoes, gasoline, and matches. It is a hot butt topic. So if Hickman was going to be the guy to come in and say, we're going to make secondary patients again, right? Maybe they'll give Betsy back her precognitive abilities. This is the guy that can make the X-Men poly. This is going to be the guy that can <laughs> make secondary patients work. <laughs> so, Kyle, what question could you not escape? What wonderment lingered on your brain the further you tried to get away from this series? In House of X6, we learned if they had executed Sabretooth, then he would have been open to the resurrection protocols. But at the same time, in relation to Jonah's first question about the precogs, we know that Moira has stated that Destiny is not allowed to come back. So I'm kind of wondering if there's other mutants who are being exempt from that rule. Holy shit, Blindfold killed herself in the last uncanny one and blindfold isn't back but besides precogs i wonder if there's anybody else who's affected by this yeah any like clairvoyance it would certainly cause them a problem. yeah or even that moira was alive like if she because moira's hidden oh yeah holy shit so like lifeguard i bet they can't bring lifeguard back 
not that anybody but Claremont and me want lifeguard. Is lifeguard back, dead? But but I mean like I mean okay, everybody from Extreme X Men is dead. It was Extreme X Men. <laughs> the only people who liked it were me and Claremont. <laughs> I liked it. I like Slipstream and Lifeguard. Okay. I fucking love all of the weird versions of Extreme X Men. I love every weird iteration of that book. It starts out the Destiny's Diaries books. And then it becomes that sort of like weird adventure book that was meant to be a parallel of Morrison's run and deal with a lot of heavy topics. And that gave us Schism, which is one of the best stories ever. Love Intifada. Oh, God, I could, I can't wait to get to Extreme X-Men. That is one of my favorite eras of Storm ever. Agreed. Sorry, got a little excited there. Dylan, Dylan, so keep me from talking more about Storm. <laughs> Tell me, what's got you a system? Um, I'm going to slightly copy off of Jonah, and I have two things, but they kind of have nothing to do with each other, but I'll talk about it quick. Because I like to pay attention to minor, minor details, in issue four, we get to see when Xavier, in our normal time, took Cypher to Krakoa, like before establishing their nation. And in one tiny little panel, we see that Doug slightly infects Krakoa with some techno-organic phalanx. And I want to know what that is about. You know, I wonder if instead of infection, it's about coalition. If that's indexing the techno-organic DNA strand. Because that's an amazing question. I hadn't even considered it that way. Yeah. I love that. And my other thing, when it came to the House of X and Powers of Ten covers, some of the variants were titled as foreshadowing variants. And one of the Powers of X issue 6 covers shows New Mutant Sunspot sitting on a throne with a bunch of Shi'ar Imperial Guard members bowing down to him. And in the year 1000 information sheets that we were seeing, they talked about how there was more mutants that were alive, but they were all in Shi'ar space. And I kind of want to know if, since most of Moira's... If this is going to be part of that yes, New Mutant if it's going to be a part of that. Yeah, right. You had mentioned, and I want to make sure to give credit to Dylan, who, thanks to his amazing House of X Facebook group, which, yes, had the name first, <laughs> he has access to an incredible fan group that he has cultivated and nurtured. And so he is at the forefront of these news articles breaking. And earlier in the run of Powerhouse, which, did anybody else notice that the description for X-Men 1 described it as this X-Men powerhouse? I'm like, ha ha, <laughs> So... <laughs> So he had mentioned that there was rumors that New Mutes was going to be about trying to find their long-lost teammate in space, and Cannonball is off in space, and Shi'ar seems like a good time to bring them in right about now, especially with the Summer's House, which is like now my dream home. <laughs> on the <laughs> We kind of didn't really talk about them, but I want to know who the hell Sinister is referring to in his gossip column. There are a couple that, like, I was able to figure out of, like, this makes sense, but there are some of them that are really vague, and I need to know. Who is he gossiping about? Who is he vague booking? In accordance to that, I want to spend an entire episode talking about Moira's journals and, yes, Sinister's list. There is some subtweeting bullshit in that nonsense that I need to know more about because now I'm convinced we're going to find out there's like 11 <laughs> summer rubs. And frankly, I want a summer's sister, three summer's cousins, and a summer's parakeet. Like Buffy? Ooh. You say Buffy? Yeah, you I bring, said Buffy. Bring, you oh, bring Buffy, Buffy to the X-Men. I got really confused. I was like, I was like, wait a minute, Buffy's a parakeet? Is there a parakeet? Did everybody know that the Slayer was a parakeet? You mentioned cousins. Oh Hush. 
Wait, Tuppence? Speaking, speaking of Buffy and Hush, <laughs> not really. I want to bring up a couple of things that appeared in X-Men number one, just because we've already been giving our audience a little bit of the necessary background to understand some of the things you're seeing. Now, we can't know what's going to be appearing further, but like we've already said a number of times, if you're looking for a strong background on Claremont era that this seems to touching on, you should probably take a look at Dark Phoenix Saga, as well as Uncanny 150 and God Loves Man Kills. That's a pretty good shorthand for the late 70s, early 80s at the House of X. If you're tempted to know a little bit more about Moira, we would of course recommend that you take a look at the New Mutes Epic Collection Renewal, which features their graphic novel, their first few issues, as well as meeting the X-Men for the first time, and that material has a strong amount of Moira. So we also say give that a look. If you want to take a look later on, runs like X-Men Revolution by Chris Claremont, as well as New X-Men, both are highly influential on this period. Not just in terms of character and story narrative, but Lionel Francis Yu, the penciler on X-Men number one, actually cut his teeth on his X-Books career during this era on titles with Claremont. There's something that appeared sort of amazingly in X-Men number one, and Dylan, I don't know if you shit your pants too, but when you saw the phrase, are you from the vault, did you throw something? I, I gasped. There was a verbal, loud gasp. I literally screamed yes. out loud reading it. I screamed at the top of my lungs. That was the greatest surprise in an already great list of surprises. And if anybody's looking to know a little bit more about the Children of the Vault, I highly recommend that you take a look at Mike Carey's tremendous Supernovas, Pandemic, Endangered Species Crossover, and X-Men Legacy. These seem to be humongous drawing points for Hickman, and I think if you want to know a little bit more and you have access to the app, the Marvel Unlimited app, you definitely want to check that out. With all of the amazing events coming out of the X-verse itself, it's hard to keep up with the rest of life, but I would be kind of remiss if I didn't say that I got kind of like the cutest little box of X-Men stuff at New York Comic Con. Jonah and I both wanted to pick up the X-Men mystery box that Stylin had at their booth, and the amazing lady at the booth helped pick out like the best boxes for us, and we got like super cute stuff, like it was like um, a lanyard and a belt, a super cute fuzzy Wolverine face mask, which I then walked around the con holding Jonah's hand screaming. I mean, this is my very serious boyfriend, and he was suitably horrified. <laughs> well, yes. But Jonah, like, that box was super fun, right? I super love everything that came in. I actually use the box here still, too, to, like, hold stuff. The box itself was really cool looking. Everything inside of it was grab bag, like, stocking stuffers that were, like, super well made and just really... Just... I was very pleasantly surprised what was inside of it, and the only one that I kind of don't know exactly what it does is it's, like, this cool reflective mirror that has the X-Men logo on it, but I have no idea what it actually is meant to be. And then a magnet? I think but it's a locker else, like... mirror. Yeah, it's, like, a locker mirror magnet. Oh, okay. That's even cooler. <laughs> everything everything that was in there was just really super cool and really enjoyable. And very, very, very big shout out and thank you to Rosie for making sure we got the special box that came with the special time Wolverine hoodie, which is super adorable <laughs> and makes you feel like you are James Howlett. Yeah, it was super cute and super fun. And I just needed to have it. And I just wanted to thank Rosie because she was so sweet and she put up with my being not sure if I wanted the Marvel box or the Alien 
Aliens box, and I actually regret not getting the Aliens box, because I love the X-Men box so much. So I just wanted to thank Rosie at NYCC from Stylin' Online. She's super awesome. And I actually want to say, looking back on House of X and Powers of Ten, I've amassed a number of pretty cool covers, and I love them all so much, and it's made me so happy to be collecting these covers, and I just want to give a super cool shout-out to The Geekery in Matawan, New Jersey, for holding my books for me. I came in the day Powers of Ten One came out, the shop I'd been going to sold out, and so they covered it, they had it for me, and they immediately started to pull this, and the next time I came in, right off the bat, hey, it's Nico, we have your house for you, and like, it was just awesome, and I just want to make sure that a comic shop that took care of me, if everybody wants to check it out, it's this amazing shop, it's called The Geekery in Matawan, New Jersey. Did anybody else have an LCS that they just can't stop raving about? I would like to shout out Zap Comics in Manalapin. Every single cover that I wanted and dreamed of and makes me cry that I get to own, they have had and I was very fortunate enough to buy and I am very thankful that they were able to help me amass the stream that I didn't know I have of collecting covers of various arts of the characters that I love. And so. ironically, there may be the shop that you bought that Nightcrawler cover from twice because you bought it from from them at NYCC as well. Yes. Uh, so thank you for them as well. Thank you for that, for carrying that cover there, because if you didn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have it. It would seem. Kyle, do you have any LCS recommendations a little bit north of here? I do. I would really love to thank A Hero's Legacy in Manchester, Connecticut. They surprised me with so many great variants during this run, and it, I think that because of this run, I've really gained a better relationship with the staff there. They've just been really taking care of me lately, and I, I really love them. Oh, yeah, I feel the same way. I actually, Zap is near my house as well, so I'll stop in there sometimes on my way to or from work. And I feel like I've gotten to know the guys there better, too. Dylan, Dylan, we, uh, several months ago, were all under the impression, <laughs> let me rephrase that, I was under the impression you lived, like, in Chicago. So I kept saying to everyone you did so that everybody thought you lived in Chicago. And then you did. <laughs> so do you have any comic shops you want to recommend that aren't in Chicago? Of course I do, but that is really funny. I remember a conversation with Jonah, and he was telling me, he was in Chicago and I was like that's great and he's like don't you live here and I was like no I don't <laughs> <laughs> I would like to give a shout out to Killens here in Springfield, Illinois, which is the Midwest and nowhere near Chicago. I really love them. A few weeks ago, they were having some issues. And during this entire amazing X-Men run of Powers of Ten and House of X, some issues were delayed. Since then, they have made it up to me in tenfold and made sure that I got every possible variant cover that I wanted and held some back for me, even if I didn't want them, but they just wanted to make me happy. So I give a shout out to Killens. They are amazing. It has been an incredible dream come true to get to do what I can only call like the Grey Malkin Roundtable Book Club <laughs> with three of my favorite guys ever. And there have been a couple of levels on which this has been more than just that. I've been able to share Hawks Pox with leader of the network, Joey, who was like, okay, you're telling me this is all I got to read to do it? Okay, I'll try it. And I just feel like, I just feel like the X-Men really did bring people together here. And that's really what I've always thought the X-Men are about. And I'm dumb and I'm gushy and I just love a happy ending. Pink, no blue. And until we return to discuss the amazingness that was X-Men number one and all of the late night fanfic I've written over the years that was just made canon. Kyle, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? 
Everybody can find me at my Facebook group called House of X, and you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Apparently running up and potentially fisting <laughs> Dazzler as she's trying to <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> or, you know, if you want to find me not doing that, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? Front row at that fucking Dazzler show, are you kidding me? Oh my god. So you guys can find me online here all over this amazing network at, on shows like this one and HTML, which I do with my incredible husband, Kevo. Husband's talking more or less, where we talk about different sci-fi franchise. We cover the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvel, the Marvel <laughs> which, you know what, considering they gave us Fark Denix, it seems just about... Oh my fitting. goodness. <laughs> uh, Alien and turning our eyes to Star Wars next. It's been an exciting ride every step ahead. You can catch my theme work on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, as well as my opinions on music over on Now and Again, which is with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts. If you like comic books, and I'm going to assume that you do, you might want to check out my super cool, superhuman, superhero, super inclusive comic book, Kid Riot, over at Kid Riot Comics. And if you want to see me without a shirt on, go check out my Instagram at N I C O A C T I. I-O-N, that is Nico Action. Alright guys, this has uh, gotta be a record for the most fisting jokes on any episode of any <laughs> Cage Club show. And Joey, Joey, I just hope I made you five finger proud. You're oh welcome. So, until next time, we'll oh, see poor you Dazzler. Oh, oh Allie. <laughs> she had to go through the 80s to get to this. Oh, this is awful. <laughs>